Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. How did organised labour go from being a relatively insignificant player in Indonesian politics at the demise of the New Order regime in 1998 to having influential parts in politics there some two decades later? What lessons have been learned along the way? And what lessons can we draw from Indonesia of interest to scholars of labour activism elsewhere and perhaps of use for labour unionists strategising in similarly fraught and changeable conditions? With me to address these and other questions are Terry Cowway and Michelle Ford, authors of Labour and Politics in Indonesia, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Terry is a professor of political science at the University of Minnesota, and Michelle is a professor of Southeast Asian Studies and director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. She's also a co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network with me, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University. Terry, Michelle, thanks for coming on to discuss labour and politics in Indonesia. Thanks for having us. In 1998, Indonesia's labour movement was, in your words, small and divided. Why? Well, labour in Indonesia has a long history, but under Suharto, who was in power for 32 years from the late 60s, labour was really decentered both from politics but also from the industrial sphere because the government was very fearful of the left and having seized power after a genocide of communists in the late 60s took really active measures to decentre labour. In the 80s and 90s, some independent activism did re-emerge through workers' groups sponsored by NGOs. But in the late 90s, just before the fall of Suharto, there'd been another crackdown. So at the time of the political transition, Labour was really not a main player on the political stage. And yet a popular movement did emerge to topple that regime. So how and why is it that Labour activists were not part of the organising to affect the political transition in Indonesia that led to the conditions that are the subject of your inquiry over the subsequent two decades? There are a few factors here. First, as I mentioned in my previous response, there was a real crackdown in 96-97 when Labor had emerged as something of an independent force. There'd been large-scale strikes in Jakarta, in Surabaya, in Medan, and the government was increasingly concerned about independent Labor activism. So because of that crackdown, even the independent groups really took a hit. So the self-styled alternative unions of the late Sahado period that had emerged from those NGO-sponsored workers' groups became a target of oppression for the regime. So in an organisational sense, they were perhaps at their weakest since the early 70s. And in addition to that, we have to remember that the transition in Indonesia was prompted in large part by the Asian financial crisis. And of course, what does a financial crisis do? It destroys jobs. So many of the workers who may have been open to being more engaged in the transition that time were in fact struggling to survive. So how in general terms did labour unions go from these conditions then to become major players in politics in Indonesia over the next couple of decades? 
you know, we have a, a three-part story. I don't want to repeat all three parts up front. So maybe we should focus first on this sort of first phase that we describe. And the method was really through street politics. And so one of the puzzles that we try to grapple with in the book is how is it that given that the labor movement was organizationally weak based on all these indicators that scholars usually focus on to explain why a labor movement is able to have a big impact, how was it that the Indonesian labor movement was able to overcome this? And one of the things we look at is a lot of the struggles initially were at the national level. And this played to some of labor's strengths because although overall density is low, the geographic concentration of labor around the capital city is quite concentrated. So if there were efforts by the national government to put in place policies that were harmful to labor, it was possible for uh, unions to mobilize their members from the industrial suburbs around Jakarta to flood into the city and to actually accumulate quite a large number of people in the capital city. So I think the geographic concentration of workers around Jakarta was something that really helped Indonesian workers. Another factor here is that going onto the streets to protest about policy was an established repertoire of action. There'd been times in the late Sahado period where workers had protested very vigorously about issues of policy, calling on the government to implement certain policies, protesting against employers' failure to do so. So this wasn't new territory for the unions. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So you've spoken there to street protesters' repertoire, and that goes to the terminology of the literature on contentious politics, noting that the book is in a series of contentious politics. For listeners who are not familiar with that literature, could you set up briefly what it concerns and how and why you thought it useful for the purposes of your inquiry? There's actually a very grounded reason why the contentious politics frame worked for us, and that's because many of the scholars of Indonesia totally ignore contention. The story of the narratives of Indonesian politics are very much about oligarchic domination, about elite contest, and there's often very little space left for the role of social movements. And the argument made in the literature on this is that social movements haven't been very strong in Indonesia. They haven't played a significant role through the Sahado period and beyond. And I think what we would like to argue and have argued elsewhere as well is that this doesn't really explain the nuts and bolts of what's happening in Indonesia politically post-Sahato. And it really ignores the incremental but important gains that social movements have made. I would also like to say a little bit about street politics, because that's a big part of the emphasis in our book about the repertoire of Indonesian unions and the labor movement. Scholars often emphasize different modalities of labor engagement. One of them might be engagement through workplace collective bargaining. Now, that pathway of action was relatively closed to Indonesian unions because they're quite weak in the workplace. Another pathway is through expressing demands through an allied political party. But that pathway was also closed to the Indonesian labor movement. There were some efforts in the early post-Suharto years to form a labor party, but it was never something that was supported uh, by a large part of the labor movement, and all of the initial efforts ended up not gaining traction. So that institutionalized channel through political parties was also closed. So our argument is that when a labor movement is blocked in the workplace and blocked through institutionalized political channels, the last pathway open to them is the street. And this was a, a comfortable way of making demands for the labor movement already, but also made the most sense given the sort of structural constraints that the labor movement faced in Indonesia. Street politics are part of the story that you tell throughout the book, and then they're supplemented by other strategies subsequently, which we'll come to momentarily. But in the early 2000s, give us a little bit more of the color and density of these protests. You spoke to the geographic concentration of the labor movement that enabled them to mobilize quickly in Jakarta. On what specific issues did they mobilize and which unions came to the fore and how did they engage as claimants with government agencies and others in order to start to obtain the kinds of political traction then that really become manifest by the late 2000s and early 2010s? 
just to give you a little bit of sense of what these protests were like, I'll start with the first major mobilization after the fall of Suharto, which were the mobilizations around a ministerial decree called KEP 150. The Minister of Manpower at the time was actually the head of the largest confederation in Indonesia, and he kind of snuck it through. And it significantly expanded severance pay for workers who were laid off. And there was pushback by business, and the Wahid administration had his Minister of Manpower who replaced the union guy to revoke this ministerial decree, which prompted massive protests. And they were decentralized. So not only in Jakarta, but some of the most disruptive protests, for example, were in Bandung. And they were kind of unruly. So you would have gates being torn down, tires being burned, and not really having a lot of central organization to these protests. One thing to keep in mind, too, in the early 2000s, you're seeing a lot of defection from what we call the legacy union, the uh, Suharto era union that continued to be the largest union, but you see a lot of breakaways. So because you have a very increasingly fragmented union landscape, these initial protests had a much more feel of spontaneity than you would see in contemporary labor protests today, which are usually planned well ahead of time and are quite organized. So those were the responses to Cap 150, and they were completely successful. The old ministerial decree was brought back. The ones that labor didn't like were revoked. And so that was a, a victory for labor. The next major mobilization was around labor law reform. So things that needed to be done to bring the labor movement into a democratic setting was to reform the old Suharto era labor laws. This was happening under the Megawati Sukarno Putri administration, primarily the Manpower Act and another act that was dealing with labor disputes. Unions were very unhappy with the draft laws and again, turning out massive number of streets, this time very much concentrated in Jakarta. This was 2000 for the uh, ministerial decree for the protest around the national labor law reform. These were happening in 2002. And they had much of the same feel in terms of bringing out large numbers in the streets from a lot of different organizations. These were not quite as disruptive as the protests around KEP 150, but the ability of the labor movement to turn out so many people in concentrated fashion definitely caught the attention of the legislators. They did not pass the law and formed a, a bipartite committee of employers and uh, unions to actually negotiate a brand new law. And so it was, again, I think a, a very strong victory for the labor movement and produced one of the strongest pieces of labor legislation in Southeast Asia. And it took quite a few attempts after that before the government actually managed to revise it last year. So that approach, the street-based approach on policy, has been really sustained in that legislative domain. By the mid-2000s, the street politics are being combined with other strategies, notably those to approach executive candidates at the local level. How and why did unions make that strategic shift or rather supplement the street politics with more deliberate interventions into executive politics and with what consequences? This is a much broader story in Indonesia because we have to remember that Indonesia went through a twin process of democratization but also decentralization. And as part of that decentralization process, a whole new political apparatus was developed at the city and district level. So not at the provincial level, but even lower. So this was an amazing opportunity for unions because suddenly they had a political arena that was right on their doorstep instead of just being in Jakarta. And what we see is... A really important part of that story is what happens with wage determination, which of course is of huge interest to unions and their members. And wage determination was also decentralised to that very local level. So you had these wage councils that were populated by representatives from the unions, from government and from employers that were meant to set a reasonable local wage that took into account the cost of living in different areas. These were meant to be quite technocratic. But actually, they became very political. They became really important arenas for contention. That didn't happen in a political vacuum, of course, because the government officials reported to district heads and district heads needed votes to be elected. So we had this virtuous circle emerge where unions could 
leverage the desire of candidates, political candidates, to have their support in the ballot box to actually get their support on the wage councils. And you see enormous wage rises in the period after this is in place. And this emboldens unions, gives them confidence and also more dynamism at that local level to start engaging with political candidates on other issues like transport for workers, like conditions in workplaces, like not agreeing to legislation that would disadvantage workers in particular regions. The wage rises are astounding. At one point, I think you you write about like in one governor granting a twenty eight percent wage rise in the mid two thousands, and again it raises questions for me about the response of companies and political parties and others that are affiliated with capital. There was a lot of rhetoric from employers about how terrible this was and how they planned to leave Indonesia. So there was a lot of scare tactics and some government ministers also took up those scare tactics. But compared to China, I think the wages were about half of Chinese wages in some of those periods. So it wasn't actually an empirical disincentive. It was more, I think, that people were losing the advantage they had in being Indonesia relatively. And also we have to remember that the costs of doing business in Indonesia are very high. The informal costs of having to pay bribes and so on and the uncertainty around regulation. So it was a complicated picture, but it's not really until that next period where we really see the huge wage rises. In this first decade after the fall of the Suharto regime, which unions were most successful and how and why did they come to the fore? Well, I think the standout here is probably FSPMI, which is part of the Confederation KSPI, but they didn't do it alone, especially if you look at the local level. Uh, You see networks of unions and which unions were in play depended very much on the locality. And so one of the things that we tried to do was to select cases where or, or localities where there were different unions that were stronger versus weaker. And you see a lot of the same patterns in terms of mobilization. For example, in East Java, FSPMI is relatively weak, whereas in the areas around Jakarta, it's quite strong. And so it would be very prominent in protests that you would see there, less prominent in Gresik, which was the locality that we did our research in in East Java. The other union that I think stands out quite a lot just because it's so large is KSPSI. But again, uh, it's more prominent in some locations and feistier in some locations than in others. So, for example, in Bokasi, you'll see SPSI being quite active and uh, less active in other places. So maybe just to give listeners a bit more background to that, we did the research not only in Jakarta, but in some other major industrial districts. So Bekasi is just to the east of Jakarta and Tangerang, one of our other field sites, is just to the west. Grosik, as Terry's mentioned, is near Surabaya in East Java. We also looked at Delhi Serdang, which is just outside of Medan, Indonesia's third largest city and the capital city of North Sumatra. And then Batam, which is a free trade zone near Singapore. And when we selected these areas, we wanted areas where unions had a presence. There's no point in studying union politics or union activity if there are no unions in a district. And that is the case for much of Indonesia. But in these particular areas, they each had a very different industrial flavour. So, for example, Tangerang is very much about light manufacturing, lots of garment industry and other labour-intensive manufacturing. Grasek is very much heavy industry. Batam is electronics and more technologically oriented industry, as is Bakasi, and then Medan was a real mix. So there was that industry background, but then there was also the history of unionism in those different places. And Bakasi had been a stronghold during the Sahato period for the mainstream union, in fact. The metal workers in the mainstream, the state-sponsored unions, were the most strong part of that union, and they kept quite a bit of activity in, in Bakasi, partly because the Japanese presence in many of the electronics factories there And the Japanese companies were quite open to negotiating with unions at the workplace level as long as it was done in a particular way. By contrast, what you see in Tangerang, where you had all that garment manufacturing, is a lot of small workers groups that had quite a lot of international support from organisations like Oxfam, not just from international unions. So there you see many more different unions, many small unions that have survived from that period. Medan's quite similar to that. Batam was very under-unionised until after Sahaja, so in many ways it was a greenfield site. And you can see how unions came in there and established themselves after Sahato. So all these different nuances, and there are many others as well, 
fed into our choice of the sites, but also really explain why some unions can be really dynamic in one location and yet hardly be there in another. So for example, FSBME, which is the metal workers, which Cherry has mentioned, Bakasi is their stronghold. They are also strong in Batam. Even in Tangerang, they're not so strong. So even though they're close to Jakarta, close to their core, they've played a much less deterministic role there than, say, in Batam or Bakasi. I'm really glad you've brought in the selection of sites there, Michelle, and the diversity of the locations, because a lot of the book is taken up with these relations between the local and national struggles. So given the amount of diversity from one location to the next, where and on what issues do we see successful translations of strategies and issues from the local to the national and vice versa? And where and on what does the union movement overall fail to translate gains and ideas from one level to the other? So wages. (laughs) So if you look at the evolution of minimum wages in Indonesia, the decade uh, of 2000 to 2010, overall, once you get past 2003, you see relative wage restraint. But then starting in 2011, an uptick happens. Wage setting happens at the local level. So the national government has no say and minimum wage increases in Indonesia then. Now is a different story. And so what was really important for the labor movement to be able to do is to convince executives, directly elected executives, aside with workers during wage negotiations. These were tripartite wage councils. So if unions could flip the executive, they could outvote employers. And what starts to happen uh, after 2010 is increasingly these elected executives are siding with workers. And uh, employers are increasingly walking out of negotiations, filing lawsuits, uh, claiming that there was a violation of process. Now, one of the things that really helped unions to leverage these local elections, because local elections didn't happen every year, right? So once an executive is elected, then why continue to give workers large wage increases? And one of the things that unions started to do was to leverage what we call interjurisdictional dynamics to put pressure on executives, even when they weren't directly facing re-election. So let's think about the Jakarta area. You might have an election in Bekasi, and the unions there managed to get a very strong wage increase. There are wage-setting patterns around the capital area where, through informal coordination, most of the district heads didn't want to be too out of whack with each other. And so unions can stay with mobilized protests and say, we want to get as much as these other guys. And we're able to leverage these dynamics across jurisdictions, where if a union in a neighboring district got a large increase, they would then use that as leverage to get a large increase from their, in their own jurisdiction, even though the district head wasn't under any electoral pressure that year. And this proved to be very effective. And, you know, in some of those districts, you ended up seeing wage rises in a single year of up to 50%. So, you know, if you think about what that would be like in Australia or America, you can see why it really disturbed government and business. I guess one of the other areas where you can see this learning process, and learning is a very central theme of our book, is in the political strategies themselves. So coming out of the Sahato period, unions really didn't think they had a role in politics. The discourse of the Sahato period had been one of economic unionism, of unionism by, for, and of workers. And to some extent, the NGOs and other intellectuals around the labour movement really bought into that narrative. And so even though you had reformists who broke away from the official union, who came up through the NGO path as well, many of them were very ambivalent about unions' roles in politics. And I'll give you a little example of this, perhaps. One of the areas where the engagement of politics really took off quite early was Batam. Batam and Surabaya really were the first two. And part of the reason for that is that the political parties in those areas tweaked to the fact that unions potentially could provide them with voting blocks. So they approached union leaders, union figures and said, hey, would you like to run for us? Or would you like to put, this is not running for them at that stage, but would you like to support us? You know, we'd love it if your union came out for our candidacy. And this was a really defining moment in the way that labour activists imagined themselves because in the Sahato period, people like workers had been told that they weren't educated enough, they weren't smart enough, they didn't know enough to be engaged in politics. Their work was defined in terms of development. 
And what we see at this moment, because the political parties are starting to seek these people out, one of the people I interviewed with a colleague, Surya Chandra, in 2007 was a guy who worked at KFC. And I'll never forget, he was just so amazed that people cared what he thought and that he might have some agency. And that same person went on to be an advisor for members of parliament at the national level and quite an influence on labor politics, even though he didn't hold a really high position in a particular union. And that sense that you could become a citizen, that you could be active as a political being as well as a worker was so important. So that's some background. So in Batam, which is a case I want to talk about, the local union there, which was the metal workers but and another other union, so it was very labour-dense because this was an industrial zone. Those people who didn't work in factories had relatives who worked in factories. After a few initial approaches by parties and so on, the union in Batam decided to go for it. They developed an independent political strategy, even though at that stage, even the metal workers in Jakarta were still formally very against politics. So in some ways, they really gazumped the centre and went ahead with a political strategy from 2005, really, in various different elections without the blessing of the central union. And they did this by establishing a political wing, a separate organisation, so that they could stay within the regulations. Where the learning occurred is that Batam's strategies leading up to 2009 and in the 2009 election, really then in 2014, became core business for the central union and really informed the success they had in other regions and particularly in Bakasi. So is the point here that a new kind of citizen is emerging through this activism? Can we speak to the causal mechanisms, if you will, between labor organizing and reconceptualization of the democratic citizen and therefore the state in the 2000s? Yeah, this is a key point and it is one we make in the book and it's great to be able to talk a bit more about it now. What you see is you have a polity that's really aprogrammatic. You have parties that very much revolve around figures, particular figures, many of them figures from particular political families or with large resource bases. So for people, not just workers, but all sorts of people who are not in that domain, it was very difficult, not only in the new order, but even in the post-new order period, to imagine that you had any more of a role than choosing who you voted for when you're in the ballot box. The role that unions played in helping workers, industrial workers, reimagine themselves as political citizens is really key because it didn't just come with rhetoric, but it came with resources. And although unions didn't have many financial resources, they had mobilisational resources. They had the bodies. They could get the bodies out on the streets. They could engage with international allies and get ideas and some money to help support those efforts. And when those efforts started to actually pay off, when parties didn't just approach workers to, you know, unions to support them, but started to negotiate with them through both the parties, but also individuals. So the executive head candidates and then later the parties wanting to run workers as candidates, it really creates a space where you're not just imagining yourself, but you can actually start to act, not just as a voter, but also as a meaningful political actor. I would just add as well, specifically within the post-Suharto context, you know, there's a lot of cynicism. So you exchange your vote for getting something in return because there's not much faith that politicians or parties will actually deliver on any promises that they make. So I think one of the things that was really important that unions did, especially when they were running their own candidates, was they transformed the thinking politically of your vote is not just something that you give to a politician because they're going to give you something material directly to you, but to make much more of a programmatic commitment to doing something for workers. So part of the Go Politics strategy of FSPMI was workers for workers. And a really good example of that was the Batam 2009 campaign, because what they did was they negotiated with a range of parties because there wasn't a Labour Party at this stage. There'd been some attempts to establish one earlier, but that all failed. But they negotiated with a range of parties to host their members as candidates, but then they advertised them on single banners. So the point that was emphasised in the campaign was the fact that these were all union representatives, not the parties that they were representing. And of course, the parties didn't like this, but they really needed to accept it at that stage. The other example I'd like to mention here is 
In the 2014 election, FSPME, the metal workers, did have two candidates for the legislature elected in Bekasi. And as a symbol of their links to the unions, they actually had them parade around with cowbells. They presented them with cowbells to remind them that they were accountable to the union and they needed to come when the union called. <laughs> I have a mental image of the cowbells right now. Michelle, Terry, let's pause here for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, you've, you've certainly given us plenty to pick up on. I think we need to talk more about the relationship between electoral politics and the politics of labor in Indonesia, more about how you wrote the book together. And we should also turn to some of the comparative lessons from Indonesia for scholars of labor politics elsewhere. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where our guests today are Terry Carraway and Michelle Ford, authors of Labour and Politics in Indonesia. Michelle, Terry, before the break, we were getting into the topic of legislative politics. This really becomes a significant part of the story you're telling in the 2010s. How and why did unions start to take legislative politics more seriously and with what consequences, both for legislative political processes and for themselves as a labour movement? As we mentioned before, there were very early attempts by political parties to engage with unions, but mostly as vote-getters. What we see in the period that we look at is there's this evolution from the street politics that Terry was discussing before into this period where their primary political engagement was with electoral candidates for district head positions and for the incumbents in those positions. Where legislature really comes into its own is in the third phase, where emboldened by those political experiments at the local level, unions start to think, well, okay, we can make a deal with the executive head of a district or a mayor, but these local legislatures also have quite a lot of power. Wouldn't it be great if we could have unionists sitting in the legislatures, not just defending unions' rights in relation to policy, but actually making those policies? So... What you see at the national level happening legislatively, I would separate policies into two buckets. Uh, One would be what I would call reactive responses by labor. And you see this happening around attempts to revise the Manpower Act, which was the piece of labor legislation that was put in place in 2003. And as Michelle mentioned previously, Yudhoyono government tried three times and failed to revise it. And this was largely at the urging of employers that these attempts were made. And all three times went up in flames. The first time in 2006, there were really large mobilizations around it that derailed it. But in the two subsequent efforts, the sort of memory of these large mobilizations from previous periods were sufficient to defeat it. Even though during this whole period, the Uroyana administration had a majority coalition in the government, right? And so this is one of the things that's really interesting to me as a political scientist is that labor had no allies in the legislature, at least no institutional allies. Their allies were with individual politicians, yet they were able to defeat government initiatives that they deemed to harm their interests. More interesting, I think, in terms of moving into a new mode of action is the Social Security Providers Law. Now, this law wasn't actually initiated by labor, but it was a very important part of the civil society coalition behind it. So they worked in conjunction with opposition legislators. So the PDIP party had been in opposition during the whole Yudhoyono administration. The labor groups not all unions, but quite a significant number of them work together with civil society groups and opposition politicians to push through this policy over the objections of the Yudhoyana administration. Yudhoyana was completely against it. So really important in terms of these legislative gains was the ability of labor to peel away members of the president's coalition. So they essentially, they didn't defect from the coalition. They were still in the government, but they did not support the president's agenda on these issues that were very important to labor. Another thing that's interesting about the struggles around the social security law was you see a much more sophisticated repertoire of action. So in addition to street politics, 
you see much savvier lobbying and learning how to monitor the legislative process much more carefully and intervene at uh, strategic points. They also started to use the courts very effectively to push forward legislation. So I think it was the first citizens lawsuit in uh, Indonesian history was filed by unions to try and force the government's hand to actually put in place this legislation that was long delayed, should have been pushed forward. I think the original Social Security law was 2004, and the, this second law was needed in, in order to actually carry out some of the vision articulated in that earlier legislation. This expansion of the repertoire of action is a really important part of this story. Unions were very familiar with campaigning on the streets, as we've discussed, but combining street-based protest with these very focused strategies in the legislature were really important. So one of the things they did, they had what they called a fluxy balcon, the balcony faction, where unionists would sit in on the discussions and they would communicate with their allies on the floor, but also communicate via email and other technologies to people outside. And this role, even though there were no institutional allies of these individual politicians, is really important because that was the first time they'd really tried to work from within. There'd been sympathetic politicians here and there, but this was a much more structured strategy. And it links very much to this experience they'd started to gain by then thinking about electoral politics outside of the actual legislature, but in the in the campaign process where they'd started to learn a bit more about the different strategies that politicians and parties used in that domain. In terms of electoral politics, the impression I get is that there really is quite a big difference here, though, between executive and legislative politics, not only in terms of the opportunity structures for unions, but also then consequently in terms of their engagement and the consequences. So as alluding to already both for those political processes, but also in terms of the effects on the movement itself. And the impression that you give is that unions generally found it more effective to work in the sphere of the executive rather than the legislative domain. Have I understood that correctly? And if so, why is that the case? That's absolutely correct, Nick. The advantage of working in the executive domain is you're really dealing with one person and that one person has decision-making power. So they may not always do what you ask them to do or what they've agreed to do because there are competing demands from very many different interest groups. But our analysis of successive heads of both districts, but also some governors over a number of years, is that in many cases, they did fulfill at least part of the undertakings, the programmatic undertakings they'd made with Labor. Where the legislature differs is even at the local level, you've got dozens of parliamentarians, dozens of legislators from different parties and even if you're at your most successful, you may elect one, two, three. We think they could have elected more if they had collaborated more and been more strategic. But there may only be, say, two Labor representatives in a legislature. And they also have responsibilities to the party that supported them. Because in Indonesia, outside of Aceh, they couldn't have their own party and they couldn't stand independently for the legislature without the support of a party. So you may have your one or two people in parliament and they may be able to do something, but their opportunity to actually affect outcomes is much less than if you've got an executive head on side. So what are the implications for the future? Can we offer any observations on the data that you generated and interpreted for the book, specifically what lessons unions and unionists have learned from their more deliberate engagement with legislative politics on top of executive politics and what you may anticipate in coming years in view of those lessons learned? Well, the contemporary situation is pretty tough right now. We don't really talk about the last few years so much in the book, but sort of piggybacking on the point that Michelle made about the executive, one thing that Joko Widodo has done as president is centralize a lot more power within the presidency. And an executive that seems to be behind an anti-labor agenda can do a lot of damage. I've been thinking a lot lately about the omnibus law, which was just passed this last year, and it's going to be another rough few years, I think, for the labor movement in Indonesia. So if we can step back a bit, I think there's a couple of important things we deal in the, with in the book that we haven't really mentioned yet. And one is the role of the unions in executive competition at the national level, so for the presidency. 
So unions didn't just engage with elected or candidates for executive positions in the regions, but increasingly also at the national level. And again, as it happened originally with the parties, this was initiated by the candidates. So Prabowo, who Indonesianists will know as the opposition contender in the 2014 election and 2019, played a really important role reaching out to unions quite early. By 2014, the unions went to both candidates. And in fact, in 2012, for the gubernatorial election in Jakarta, when Jokowi, the current president, was running for governor, he did a deal with the metal workers and others to support union agendas once in office if they supported him. And at first that worked out, but then he did the dirty on them on one of the wage rises. And that really coloured the decision of the metal workers in particular around the 2014 elections and who to support. So you have the situation where you have Jokowi not being very involved, not caring much to engage with Labour, and Prabowo wooing them, and not just wooing them, but offering to sign a list of 10 Labour demands that he would support if he gained office. Behind the scenes, he also offered the head of the middle workers the Ministry of Manpower role, which was, as Terry mentioned earlier, quite often held by Labour people in the past, but hadn't been for some time. What's interesting in the 2019 election, which we don't discuss much in the book, is the fact that both candidates woo Labour in a very active way. So even though Prabowo lost in 2014, clearly Jokowi understood that Labour was a constituency worth wooing. I think the take-home point is that when unions make strong investments in the political education and political mobilization of their members, you see the results at the ballot box. We uh, surveyed four districts in three localities, so Tangerang City, Tangerang District, and Bakasi District. And we surveyed similar samples in all of these sites, and they had different unions that were running candidates and seemed to be the most politically active in these areas. And we found that in Bakasi, there's a real difference there as compared to Tangerang, and also a notable difference over time. So uh, in 2009, the local union there was not very active, even though the national union had put forward a pretty aggressive political strategy. This was not embraced at the local level. And you saw this in all the questions we asked about awareness about labor candidates, whether people voted for them, very low on, on all of these measures. And then in 2014, the local branch of the Metal Workers Union had a change of heart. They decided to go all out and fully embraced the electoral strategy of the national union. And you saw a real transformation within this union, within the Metal Workers Union, in terms of the awareness of its members that there were candidates running for office and also their likelihood to vote for them. So we saw a real difference between the Metal Workers Union and other unions in Bakasi. So the limitations of the strategy, though, I think also are in part because it was such a new strategy is you didn't see much of a spillover into other unions. So other unions in Bakasi, for example, SPSI, did not show the same sense of awareness or willingness to vote for labor candidates as the Metal Workers Union, which had made a real strong investment in educating the members about the union candidates that were running for office and encouraging them to vote for them. And also at the national level, there was a letter issued by the president of the union telling workers, members that they should vote for these labor candidates. And circling back to the presidential story, we also saw a 20-point bump in FSPME members' likelihood of supporting Prabowo than the general public in those areas. All unionists were more on side with Prabowo, but the target union that was doing all this really active campaigning and was campaigning for Prabowo really had an impact in that way as well. This is the point that you're making where you say then that politicized collective, and here I'm reading from the text, politicized collective identities haven't resulted in the formation of a working class constituency in legislative races, but rather an organizational constituency rooted in the membership of one union, FSPMI, the metal workers union that Terry was just referring to. But in the presidential race, there is evidence of the emergence of a working class constituency precisely because it's crossing organizational divides. So I think one of the things that's really important is that executive elections are quite different than the legislative elections because in these presidential races, unions don't have their own horse in the race, right? So they can all coalesce more easily around an external candidate. But in the legislative races, 
it's very rare for the unions to actually collaborate with each other to back a legislative candidate for one union. Not only does this reduce the chances of labor candidates getting elected, it also means that you know the unions haven't done the work to really get members from other unions to support their candidates. One exception I will say, we did a follow-up survey after the 2019 election, and there was one uh, development that was quite interesting around a candidate who ran for district head in Bukasi named Obon Tabroni, and then he was elected in 2019 to the national legislature. He lost the district head race, but he actually won a lot of support from workers that belong to other unions, lower than from his own union, but much higher than legislative candidates from the Metal Workers Union had received in previous elections. And this pattern held when he ran in the legislative race as well. But again, Obon Tabroni is a real charismatic figure in Bekasi. Indonesian politics are very organized, but voters are very um, follow figures more so than parties or organizations. And so there was no coattail effect to the other legislative candidates who were actually running for local offices. And another example is in Delhi Serdang, the industrial area just outside of Medan. There, there were a lot of quite small unions, so it wasn't the metal workers that was leading the charge. And they backed a candidate for an executive head race in 2014. And it was a very interesting case because they established a coalition, they had a formal agreement, the unions all agreed to support this particular candidate. But when it came to the crunch, it all fell away. And I think it's the reasons why it fell away that are interesting for the discussion we're having now. On one hand, it was very much about a lack of strategy, a lack of experience, a lack of resourcing to actually keep the coalition going. But more importantly, I think it really spoke to the divided loyalties that workers have and unionists have because of the other elements of their identity. So in terms of lessons learned, it's been a really sobering period the last few years because, as Terry mentioned, Jokowi really acted and succeeded in acting in ways that previous presidents had tried and failed to really rein in the labour movement. Terry's mentioned the omnibus law of late last year, which is one of those very serious developments. But earlier, there was a government decision on wages in 2015, which really undercut the strength of the Wage Council as a bargaining arena by imposing a formula that theoretically couldn't be changed. Now, it's a testament to union strength that some governors even have ignored the government's instructions on this and passed slightly higher wages. But in the the larger picture, it's really undercut that local dynamism that really supported the development of the labour movement as a political actor and an industrial actor at the regional level. Your observations, Michelle, have also brought us to questions of comparative labour politics. What are the lessons for labour organising in contentious times elsewhere that we get from Indonesia? Well, I think one of the things is, you know, if you look at a lot of the comparative labour politics literature, it's pretty depressing. Most of these days, it's about unions and decline. But one of the things that I think makes Indonesia so interesting is that even at its strongest, the share of the labor force that was unionized in Indonesia is much lower <laughs> than in many countries where labor is in decline. And so in the conclusion of the book, we sort of think a little bit about what is it that's distinct about the Indonesian labor movement. And one of the things that we conclude is that it's this sort of networked power within the public sphere that has been really important. It's, it hasn't been because Unions have been able to get great collective bargaining agreements with employers. In most cases, that's not so. It hasn't been because they formed alliances with civil society organizations to uh, engage in what's called social movement unionism, where you have a broad coalition that goes beyond just labor to make political demands. It's been through this very union-based, networked movement that's small, it's fragmented, But through these networks from the local level uh, and then through their federations channeling up to the national level have been able to be surprisingly effective in mobilizing their members where it counts and learning new strategies for engaging in the political sphere. And I think that the importance of the wage councils at the local local level just can't be underestimated because one of the things that those institutions force unions to do And one of the arguments we make about why for so many years 
these local institutions did not deliver for unions. Part of it was that unions hadn't quite figured out how to cooperate with each other at the local level, and also because there had been some legacy effects of fairly conservative members controlling most of the positions on these wage councils. But this slowly changed, and as you start getting to the end of the first decade of the 2000s, you start to see these networks that are not necessarily formally institutionalized, but come together in fairly ad hoc fashion around the minimum wage negotiations. And by exercising this organizing muscle on a regular schedule every year, it really kept the movement in shape and ready to mobilize for bigger battles at the national level as well. I'm not sure if this can be actually translated to other contexts directly. You know, we think about this in relation to the Philippines, where you also have minimum wage councils. They've had very different effects because the districts or the sort of jurisdiction for the wage councils is different than the electoral districts. So they cannot be played to political effect in the same way as in Indonesia. But overall, I think it is a message of hope because what we see in Indonesia is a labor movement that should have been able to have no political impact at all. And yet it's had quite significant political impact in the areas where it's strongest. What I think this demonstrates, and we argue this in the book, is that you don't have to be in a position of strength to affect change. It's about strategy. It's about alliances. It's about using those political opportunity structures that are available in new and dynamic ways to really make the best of what you've got at your disposal. Great. Let's take that optimistic point and move to the final part of our discussion. One thing I've been hanging on to ask you both about is what do you think the book achieves through co-authorship that it wouldn't have been able to achieve if one or the other of you had written it? Well, I mean, I think that Michelle has uh, many years of experience studying Indonesian politics. And for me, it was really good to have a sounding board because I think all of us come into research with our own sort of preconceptions and having somebody to talk through things and sort of have a second uh, set of very critical eyes on things that I had drafted, I found to be really essential. The other thing I would just say in terms of logistics, we were able to cover a lot more territory <laughs> by combining our strengths. We were able to build research in five localities and in the capital city where all the national unions are headquartered. So I think, uh, you know, both in terms of expertise and just logistics and being able to get more done with two people working on it was really important. And I guess the final point I'd make there is the writing was very collaborative. So I think that actual process of refining ideas, not just by commenting on people's work, but actually co-producing it, makes a really big difference to how a book ends up. Terry Carraway, Michelle Ford, thank you very much for joining me to talk about labour and politics in Indonesia. Thank you, Nick. And thanks to everyone for listening. If this episode was of interest to you, then you might also like to listen to Ben Bland talking recently with Patrick Jory about his Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo, and the struggle to remake Indonesia, or Dan Slater talking with me in one of the earliest episodes for the Southeast Asian Studies channel about ordering power, contentious politics, and authoritarian leviathans in Southeast Asia. These are just a couple of the thousands of other interviews you can get free on the New Books Network website right now or from wherever you subscribe to your podcast.